Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. This morning, we're talking San Jose, the 10th largest city in the nation, more than twice the size of Oakland, and yet it often doesn't get top billing even here in Northern California. We've got Mayor Sam Licardo on to answer your questions about his final year in office, including, but not limited to gun control, housing for people experiencing homelessness, La Pulga, the flea market, and what Vietnamese spots are at the top of the city hall rankings. That's right, we've got an Ask the Mayor this morning with a leader from the heart of Silicon Valley. Get your questions ready. We'll be right back with Mayor Licardo after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Sam Licardo grew up in Santa Clara County, headed east to Georgetown for undergrad, and then Harvard for his J.D., Master's in Public Policy. It's almost like he knew he'd be a politician someday, and after 10 years as a prosecutor, he ran for city council in 2006. Since then, he's been a fixture of San Jose politics, winning re-election to a seat in 2010, and then eking out a win in the mayor's race in 2014. In 2018, he won re-election with 75% of the vote, and this will be his last year in office as he's term-limited out. But there's a lot left to do in 2022, including implementing at least pieces of a gun control plan after last May's horrific mass shooting at the Valley Transit Authority rail yard. Welcome to the show, Mayor Sam Licardo. Alexis, great to be with you. Yeah, great to talk with you. So in your time in office, what's the most important thing that you've gotten done? You know, I hope what we've done here is started to inspire an organization to think differently about its role in the Valley, uh, about how it can be more innovative, more nimble, uh, how we can leverage the, the great creative thinking and the many resources of this Valley to tackle our biggest challenges, whether they're homelessness, uh, crime, or, or a host of other challenges. And so uh, I hope what we're doing here is really changing the orientation of City Hall in a way uh, that will ultimately put us on a better path. Uh, in the long run. Now, there are a lot of initiatives we've been working on, and I won't bore you with all the details, but the stuff I'm most proud of is the work that we've done really uh, to help young people in our city really broaden their opportunities and expand uh, uh, their, particularly their educational and economic opportunities. And, and one initiative in particular that we're working on right now is, is helping more than 1,200 first-generation students get to college. So we're going to keep working on initiatives like that through, through this year and, and hopefully ensure that they'll be sustainable in the years ahead. Did you change any of the structures of City Hall to kind of reflect what you're calling this sort of more innovative thinking? Well, we certainly changed my own office as we created an office of strategic partnerships, as well as an office of technology and innovation. Uh, and we leveraged some really brilliant minds uh, from around the country, in fact, around the world. Uh, a lot of great folks who had been in the private sector who wanted to simply give a year or two of public service have come uh, aboard here as a result of different fellowships that we've had, uh, and some of them have actually stayed. Uh, one I'm very proud of is who's now uh, leading a lot of great work in the city manager's office. The challenge we have 
with the structured government in San Jose is that uh, we still have something of a hybrid structure. And as mayor, I don't even have the authority to hire or fire uh, any department heads or tell them what to do. It all has to be done through council vote to, to the city manager. And so uh, it really limits and constrains. We have sort of a, a 1950s uh, style of city government for a city that's obviously much, much larger than it was way back then. And so I think that's going to be a critical issue uh, in the years ahead of how it is we can make this city more nimble uh, so the mayor can come in and actually effectuate more change internally. Yeah. Let's talk about this latest move on gun control, which is a kind of first of its kind law in the U.S. requiring that gun owners in San Jose possess liability insurance. Can you tell us a little bit about the development of this policy? Yeah, there are actually two elements to it. Uh, one is the gun insurance requirement, as you mentioned, as well as a requirement that gun owners pay a fee. And that fee will go to a nonprofit foundation that will then invest, invest dollars into proven evidence-based strategies to reduce violence uh, and gun violence, uh, particularly targeting um, residents who live in homes where a gun is owned, because we know if we can uh, get engaged with mental health support, domestic violence prevention, suicide prevention, uh, gun safety classes, uh, we can save a lot of loss uh, of harm uh, by really investing in people who have access to guns and reducing the proclivity to use those guns. Um, you know, the majority of gun deaths in our country are actually not by homicide, they're by suicide. Mm -hmm. uh, more than a third of the injuries that show up in our, our emergency rooms are, are are unintentional inflictions of harm using guns. And so it's not all about crooks. Certainly we want to do everything we can to get guns out of the hands of crooks. And there's a lot we've done to try to push on that. But this is really about the, the broader sweep of harm that doesn't make the headlines, but still devastates families every day. You know, one of the things that I keep coming back to is, you know, relative to maybe the hopes of big city mayors, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, feels like gun control has not really worked in the way that people hoped. You think that's true? I don't. I don't know that we've really implemented it very widely, honestly. If you look at the data as to those states which have stronger gun restrictions, um, like California, you see much lower rates of death per capita uh, with the use of firearms. So I do think that gun restrictions help. Uh, the problem is we just haven't had a willing partner at the federal level. We haven't had a, a ban on assault weapons in this country for many years. It was passed in the mid nineties and then expired. Uh, we don't have any kind of universal uh, uh, background check. You know, these are the kinds of things that Republicans and Democrat voters tend to agree on pretty strongly, uh, mm -hmm. but we just don't have a very courageous partner in, co in Congress. So, so it's really been left to a lot of states and local governments to try to come up with the best they can uh, in a world where we just don't have those kinds of uniform protections. Yeah. So already, like basically the second that the city council adopted this new uh, liability insurance <laughs> move, there were uh, lawsuits. People were ready. They, you know, the lawyers were chomping at the yep. bit. What are the odds you think this policy gets to make a, an impact in the in the real world without being tied up forever in court? Oh, yeah, we, we certainly expected the lawsuits, you know, where angels fear to tread, uh, lawyers rush in. We are uh, fortunately we're represented with, by a great firm uh, headed by Joe Kachet, who's uh, 
who's been willing to take on this, this case pro bono. And we've got some great help from national organizations that are helping us as well. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to uh, give you any prognostications. We know it's going to be a battle. And uh, we think this is constitutional. There's lots of reasons for believing this is constitutional. Uh, we've had taxes on guns and ammunition in this country since 1919, and they've been upheld. Uh, we've certainly seen reasonable regulations uh, upheld on the exercise of lots of constitutional rights, whether it's uh, the, the lawyers who filed the lawsuit against us paying fees at the courthouse steps when they were exercising their Seventh Amendment rights, <laughs> uh, or, or you know, the, the right of a newspaper to publish uh, under the First Amendment, it can still be taxed. So, so we know that there are reasonable regulations that will be upheld. We think these regulations are very reasonable. Uh, we want to give them a chance to work because we critically need investment uh, in these violence prevention programs. We're talking with San Jose Mayor Sam Licardo. We'd love to hear from you. Give us a call with your questions for the mayor. And here's a, something we're thinking about. What's the San Jose you want to see in 10 years? And how's that different from the San Jose of today? Give us a call now. 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum. And of course, the email address is forum at kqed.org. Um, I imagine you've gotten some pushback on the gun ordinance here. Uh, we have a listener, Michael, who tweets, if it makes sense to tax peaceful gun owners to cover the cost of gun violence, doesn't it make just as much sense to tax loving married couples to cover the cost of domestic violence? Yeah, I think uh, let's talk about domestic violence for a moment. Um, what we know from the data is that uh, if there is intimate partner violence uh, and there's a gun in the house, there's five times greater likelihood that we're going to see a fatality. Um, we, we know that we're not going to prevent all conflict in the world. Uh, we're not going to stop all violence. There's no such ordinance that does that. But a public health approach uh, that, and certainly one that we've taken to address other crises in the past, uh, has been effective, has been proven effective in reducing harm. That's what this is about, reducing the likelihood that someone is going to die or be seriously hurt. And when I say public health approach, you think about, for example, reducing auto fatalities. Uh, you know, we used insurance as, very effectively in this country for the last five decades, and that encouraged drivers to be driving cars with anti-lock brakes and airbags and to get good driver discounts. Um, there's great benefit in those risk-adjusted premiums and encourage safer behavior. Similarly, we want to encourage gun owners to be safer as well. And so uh, with risk-adjusted premiums, there's no reason why gun insurance uh, cannot, as it does today, encourage folks to buy gun safes or get trigger locks or take gun safety courses. And, and those are really important things in a country where 4.6 million children live in a home where a gun is kept unlocked and loaded. In other words, accessible uh, to anyone to, to result in all kinds of harm. And of course, you know, we have 27,000 unintentional gun shootings in this country every year. So, so there's a lot we can do to make gun ownership safer. Uh, I'm not suddenly going to proclaim the end of gun violence. That's not what this is about. Let's just reduce the devastation. Yeah. So I want to ask you the question we're asking our listeners. What's the San Jose you want to see in 10 years, Mayor Licardo? I think San Jose has all of the potential in makings to become the most successful multicultural community in the country. 
uh, if not the planet. Uh, we are an incredibly diverse city. Almost 40% of us were born in a foreign country. Uh, it's a diversity that has worked for many years. I think uh, Raj Yeti did a study a few years ago that showed there was more uh, economic mobility in San Jose than any other city in the country. Uh, we are an incredibly innovative community and creative community, and we have the highest rate of patent authorship. You know, there's so much happening here, obviously, in Silicon Valley, but it's not just about the tech. It's about uh, bringing people from all over the world uh, and, 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 and creating uh, the great ideas that are going to drive uh, this, this world forward uh, and, and the critical ideas that we need, uh, whether it's around uh, addressing climate change or reducing violence or anything else. And so I think we can be that community. We've got lots of challenges, there's no question. And by the way, homelessness is at the very top of the list. Uh, so let's not ignore that, uh, but plenty of other challenges. Uh, but I'm confident we can get there. And I, I see a lot, of, uh, a lot of positive signs heading that direction. Yeah. And that's just, we're definitely going to talk some housing after the break, including your initiatives um, to provide housing for people who are experiencing homelessness. We're talking with San Jose Mayor Sam Licardo, and we want to hear from you. What are your questions for the mayor about the state of the city and his tenure as mayor of San Jose and the role that San Jose plays here in our region? And what's the San Jose you want to see in 10 or 20 years? How is it different from today? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Instagram or KQED Forum or email us at forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. I'm talking with San Jose Mayor Sam Licardo, and he's taking your questions. You're asking the mayor here today. I wanted to talk uh, about housing. Uh, 2018, City of San Jose adopted a housing crisis plan to add 25,000 new units of housing by 2023. Uh, interim report suggested that from 2018 to early 2021, 3,000 units had been completed. Uh, but there were a lot more that were under construction that had been entitled. How are you feeling about getting to that 25,000 number, uh, which would be more than a doubling of the annual long-term average of housing production in San Jose? Yeah, we're, uh, we're not getting there. And that's, there's no question uh, that we're going to fall short uh, on that goal. And that's a big deal. And there's lots of reasons why that's not happening as we'd like. Uh, I think we all know that the overwhelming majority of housing production is 
uh, emanates from the private sector. And with rapidly rising construction costs, the financing of housing construction has gotten much, much more difficult. And we hear mm-hmm. every day from builders, they simply cannot get the loan. They can't get the equity investment because the high costs mean that you know their, their investors aren't going to make the returns they need. So um, unless those numbers change, we're simply not going to get the investment we need in the industry. Now, obviously, the pandemic didn't help either, and there have been lots of other associated challenges. Um, what I hope we're doing, though, is building a strong foundation for rapid uh, acceleration of housing production. And one area where we critically can do that um, is in North San Jose, where we had 24,000 units planned to get built that have not gotten built. We haven't had a single uh, a single shovel break the ground for housing development in that part of the city in about seven or eight years. And that's because uh, we've been held up over uh, litigation threats and, and lawsuits, uh, uh, you know, potentially posed by surrounding jurisdictions, uh, city of Santa Clara. And we're trying to resolve with the city of Santa Clara and the county of Santa Clara, any objections they have that so that we can move forward with housing. That's critically important. We've got a lot of transit development there. We have a lot of jobs there. It's exactly where we should be building uh, high density mixed use uh, projects that will put a lot of housing out there, including rent restricted and affordable housing. So I think we're going to be able to get that hopefully resolved in the next two or three months. If we can do that, that will really unleash a lot more housing development in our city. And then obviously uh, the economic winds are going to have to, to blow well as well. Yeah. Let's bring in caller Javier from the east side of San Jose. Welcome, Javier. Hey, how's it going? Good, good. Hey, Javier. Hey, Sam. Um, nice to talk to you guys. Uh, so did you want me to ask my question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. You're on the air. Yeah. Okay. Hey. Uh, okay. So I was just, uh, I, you know, I was born and raised in San Jose and um, I went away for school, for college, and I came back and I'm, uh, you know, I'm 31 years old. I want to get into the housing market and and I wanted to ask you what kind of programs can you come up with or can, you know, San Jose work for uh, towards getting somebody like me into, you know, as a first time buyer here in the market that, you know, where we're pretty much priced out, you know, my generation, unless there's generational wealth, um, you know, how are we supposed to continue to live here? Yeah. Gosh, I, I mean, so many people I know in your same spot, Javier. Um, Mayor Licardo? A huge generational challenge, uh, Javier. I, I, I know you know you're not alone, and this has got to be hugely frustrating for someone like yourself uh, who is from this community, uh, wants to remain in this community, and we want to keep you in any way we can. Uh, you know, the first-time homebuyer programs that we had back in the good old days of the redevelopment agencies that existed throughout the state of California have gone away because the state has eliminated redevelopment. Uh, they did that a few years ago. So Jerry Brown, no specifically, yeah. That's right, yeah. So there's no obvious source of funding. What we did do was we passed a measure called Measure E uh, in 2020, uh, and we're using some of those dollars to help. Um, most of the dollars are focused on homeless, of course, but some of those dollars are helping uh, what we call moderate income households be able to uh, be able to get their foot in the door. Um, we are 
still evaluating that measure E plan uh, as we, well, it'll come, be coming up, I think in, in two or three weeks. So this will be an opportunity for public advocacy. Um, and we certainly encourage you to get involved uh, if you'd like to see some of those dollars dedicated or more of those dollars dedicated to home buyer assistance. The truth of the matter is we don't have a large enough program to come anywhere near uh, the scale of the need. What I believe we need to do both is enable the dollars to be there, but also um, to enable more kinds of development that's going to help more folks get into uh, essentially smaller condos. Uh, we're seeing more micro housing getting built and so forth that can help folks at least get their foot in the door and build equity. We know that is the critical issue is when you can pass that threshold for moving from paying from rent uh, to actually paying uh, to, uh, to, to build equity uh, mm -hmm. And so we have been trying to work with developers around building those smaller units uh, for sale that will enable more folks to get a foothold. Uh, I know that doesn't look like the old fashioned American dream with the, the white picket fence and the big lawn in front. Uh, but I think that's going to have to be our future as long as we have such severe constraints, given the very, very high yeah. cost of living here. So that's going to be our focus. And if you're willing to live downtown in a, in a, in a high density project, we'd love to have you. You know, uh, Mayor Licardo, I've, I've really been plagued by the idea that a lot of the problems that we look to mayors and city councils to deal with, you know, I mean, housing and displacement most especially, that kind of city officials in a big regional economic system like the Bay Area, like you can't actually have the impact that we'd like you to. Like our democratically elected officials are really underpowered for some of these challenges uh, as a region. If you agree with that, like, how could we change the actual structures of government here in the Bay Area so that we can, you know, actually solve some of these regional problems like our housing crisis? Well, there certainly are much bigger forces uh, at work here than simply whatever happens in City Hall. You're right. And, and, and two of those forces are called supply and demand. <laughs> and those are really important. Um, on the supply side, there's no question that local governments can be doing a lot more. Uh, and I think you hit the nail on the head, um, Lexus, with reference to the regional solutions, because, you know, there are certainly the large three cities, Oakland, San Francisco and San Jose, uh, that are almost uniformly aligned on every housing initiative, uh, doing all we can, uh, both to find sources of affordable housing, to build high densities where we can to accommodate more folks. That is not uh, a shared value among all 99 cities and towns in the Bay Area. There are some certainly that are more progressive than others, uh, but the reality is that many, many suburbs are still essentially gated communities. And we're seeing a lot of behavior where we see cities rapidly expand uh, their tech uh, availability for tech campuses and build out industrial and commercial, because we know that's really good for uh, the fiscal uh, status of the city, helps the treasury but essentially locks out an awful lot of folks from being able to live there because they're not allowing high density housing anywhere near the level that's necessary uh, to be able to actually provide homes for all those people who are working on those campuses. Um, and so we'd love to see stronger laws. It would have to come from the state ultimately to empower the local MTC, ABAG, other regional governments to be able uh, to really force cities 
um, to live up to their responsibility to house all the folks who are working within their borders. Yeah. And if we like the revenue that comes from these companies, then we ought to like the people who work there, too. Yeah. You know, Patrick, uh, one of our listeners, writes, why does San Jose continue to support the building of new offices when there is such a housing shortage? Why not zone everything residential and suspend office construction until supply catches up with demand? New office space space drives up housing prices and creates more super commuters driving up pollution. Even mixed housing office projects would help. Google Village is severely underhoused. What do you think? Yeah, Patrick, Patrick raises an interesting question. Um, and I know a lot of folks ask this, well, why are we building any commercial or any office at all? Well, San Jose is also in a very unique position um, because we're the only major city in the world that actually has I'm sorry, in the country, I should say, <laughs> forgive me, the only major city in the country that actually has a smaller daytime population than nighttime population. Um, and by that, I mean, we are overwhelmingly a bedroom community. Uh, we have the worst uh, jobs to housing balance of any major city in the country. Although we would think, hey, in the heart of Silicon Valley, it must be all jobs and no housing because we have a housing crisis. Well, the reality is we have lots of very wealthy suburbs around us. Um, that are, you know, have very large campuses of major uh, tech companies. Uh, and San Jose overwhelmingly is the place that houses those folks. That creates huge challenges for us being able to simply pay for basic services like emergency, emergency medical response or police. We have the most thinly staffed city hall of any major city in the country because of the severe budgetary constraints of being such an enormous bedroom community. Hmm. So we don't really have the choice to say, let's just build housing because that just means uh, our basic services will continue to decline. And those are basic services that people have a right to and, and reasonable expectation uh, to be able to have those kinds of responses. I mean, very critical things like responding to homelessness. We have to go pass measures to go find new funding sources because we are so stretched. Um, and so, and so it's a bit of a challenge for us. You can see we're, we're being pulled at both ends. What we need is an entire region to step up to its responsibility of housing as the large cities have. Um, at the same time, we build office and, and commercial and so forth in a way um, uh, that uh, does not outpace the housing. And I can tell you what we've built so far under my term, we're still building housing faster than we're adding jobs. Uh, it's still the case that that jobs housing ratio uh, has not tilted at all uh, toward the favor of, of jobs. It continues to be heavily housing balanced. Uh, the ratio for those who might be keeping track at home is around 0.82. That is about uh, 0.82 jobs for every employee. What is resident. that ratio for a place like Cupertino? Uh, it's north of two. It may even be mm -hmm. as high as 3.0. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So two to three times yeah. higher. Uh, and, and that's a huge challenge. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about a uh, controversy that's erupted. It's a nonprofit news group, the uh, spotlight there in San Jose, has filed a lawsuit uh, against you, uh, accusing you of violating the Public Records Act. And you fired back on Medium, saying you had legitimate reasons for your actions. Do you think you did anything wrong with regard to using your private email address for city correspondence? No. As long as I'm turning over uh, private emails, uh, that are responsive to Public Records Act requests. Uh, there's certainly nothing wrong with using private email. Uh, I know many folks do it, and I will continue. I turned over thousands of emails in response to those Public Record Act requests from Spotlight, uh, so they got to see all my private email. 
Uh, I think the particular issue of dispute was uh, my decision to delete an email that they alleged was deleted because uh, I was trying to subvert the law. Uh, and they left out some really important facts out of their accusation and out of their press conference. And the important facts were that I deleted the email in response to a constituent who wrote me and said, I fear for the life of myself and my daughter if this information about the police is revealed. Uh, can you please make sure this doesn't get publicly disclosed? And I said, sure, I'll delete this. And that same individual, for whatever reason, decided to go to the media anyway. Uh, and so the email's out there. So there's nothing to hide at this point. The email's out there, including uh, his very clear statement that he feared for his safety. Uh, so uh, the law allows me to delete those emails uh, when it's to protect uh, the identity of informants uh, who may have information that would put them in harm. It also struck me um, that like saying in your email, I'm going to delete this <laughs> email is someone who's been in public life for a long time would know that that might eventually end up in the public eye. Sure. As long as it's justified and it's lawful, that's the issue. And uh, the California Evidence Code and the California Supreme Court have been really clear on this. Uh, if there's a concern about the well-being of an informant, yes, you can keep that information from being disclosed. Yeah. Let's talk about another um, country that's happened there in San Jose. We've covered a lot here at KQED. Uh, and that's what, what's been happening with La Pulga, the big uh, flea market in San Jose, been around since 1960. Do you feel like the vendors there got a, got a fair deal? Yeah, that's an important question. I, let's say this. I think they got the best deal that they could have possibly gotten um, given the constraints, the legal constraints that we're all operating under. Uh, and by that, I mean, you know, the investment of $5 million from, uh, from the property owner and the five from the city to try to enable a transition for folks to be able to uh, continue their businesses uh, in some form, whether here, uh, you know, elsewhere outside uh, the, the Polga and, and the rest of the city, or uh, maybe there on site where we're looking to see how we can build out a more permanent uh, set of vendor stalls that will be integrated in the new development. Um, I think there's a, there were a lot of compromises made, I think, by all sides. There's no question both sides would have liked something different. I think what we got was the best possible deal. Um, and, you know, look, the Polga has been an incredible cultural institution uh, in our community. I think the largest flea market in the country uh, at one point it may still be. And a great mechanism for enabling so many families to be able to support themselves uh, and, and really reflective of the great cultural diversity of our city. And so we, we want to support those families and those vendors. And we want to see that environment continue. And I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity to see how we can integrate um, a next generation Polga and ultimately whatever gets built around that BART station. Yeah. Moving to our sort of potpourri here of questions um, from listeners who have been coming in. Ernst asked, there have been an alarming number of people killed by cars in San Jose in 2022 already. How can you reduce this? Yeah, it's it's been an awful toll. Um, six of the deaths have been pedestrians, my knowledge. Another four, I think, were auto collisions. Uh, what we know is five of those six pedestrians were crossing a street outside a crosswalk. So 
one thing we got to do is is really try to make sure we got the signage in place, maybe even fencing, and do a lot more educating to ensure folks understand. Look, it really does make a difference where you cross the street, uh, and drivers may not be aware, may not see it. Um, we're really focused right now on using data to identify where the fatalities are happening, where the the high rates of injuries are happening. And we've identified 17 corridors, what we call vision zero corridors. And that's where it's about 3% of our street network. That's where 55% of our fatalities are happening. So we think we've, we've nailed what we've got to focus on. And what we're trying to do is, is trying to improve those roadways in ways that will make them safer, often by narrowing uh, the frame of reference for the driver. Um, for example, we're putting in bike lanes and, and reducing lanes. Uh, forces drivers to drive more slowly, more carefully. Uh, we've seen that in, in the data. And we know that speed is the overwhelming driving consideration in fatalities. And there's a huge difference, obvious, obviously, in, in the likelihood someone's going to survive in a crash that's 10 miles an hour uh, yeah. higher in speed. And so, so doing everything we can to reduce speed is critical. Um, the problem is a lot of those improvements cost millions of dollars. And so we're really experimenting with a lot of what we call quick build safety improvements, uh, you know, using paint, using plastic bollards, using a lot of things that can help us, again, narrow uh, the frame of reference for the driver, slow things down, give pedestrians more time. Uh, we would love to see the state adopt an automated speed enforcement law that would enable us uh, to be able to uh, ticket folks who are, who are obviously, you know, creating the great majority of of risk and harm out there. There's a bill now uh, that uh, some of member Friedman has sponsored. We're hopeful we're gonna keep supporting that and hopefully that get that over the goal line. Uh, so we're gonna have to do all these things. We're gonna have to work on all these local improvements, some education and hopefully get some changes at the state level. Yeah. Uh, because we're, 14 we're, other states have this ability. There's no reason why California shouldn't. Sure. We're talking with San Jose Mayor Sam Licardo. He's taking your questions. We'll be back with more Forum right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're asking the mayor with San Jose Mayor Sam Licardo. What are your questions for the mayor? And what does San Jose you want to see in 10 years? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch all the other 
uh, digital ways, including forum at kqed.org. want to read a few uh, questions uh, and comments from our listeners here. Um, Naomi writes, uh, one of our earlier listeners had said, why don't we tax you know married couples for domestic violence? And Naomi uh, responds to the listener who commented that taxing gun owners is like taxing happily married people to fund domestic violence. Actually, we do that. In California, marriage license taxes fund domestic violence services statewide. Also, the VTA shooter had a history of domestic violence. There's a significant connection between domestic violence and mass shootings. Thanks, Mayor Sam Licardo, for your work to address gun violence. So, um, pays to know what you're talking about, I Sign guess. Her up. Wow, yeah, right. <laughs> great response. Wish I would have thought of that. <laughs> uh, Jennifer writes, the mayor mentioned an antiquated government structure where the mayor cannot fire a department head. Yes, he's correct. The mayor and council hire a professional manager, the city manager, who holds long experience in local government as a public administrator. I hold more comfort and trust in a professional rather than a political administrator. Our recent history has made that benefit clear. Not everyone's with you, Mayor. <laughs> yeah, and that's uh, fair. You know, but I think we need to also recognize that to the extent, and, and look, I have no gripe with city managers. I'm, you know, I'm the one who actually uh, brings the appointment to the council. So I, I support all of our city managers that we've had in my term. Um, you know, the, the challenge is one of accountability. Uh, voters expect their mayor <laughs> mm-hmm. and those they elect to be able to act. Uh, if we're in the middle of a pandemic, if we're in the middle of a flood, they expect that the mayor is the one making the decisions. Uh, and there's a tremendous disconnect when a mayor has to stand in front of a bank of cameras defending decisions they didn't make. Uh, that is a problem. And it's a problem when people de- demand a mayor do something about something. And the best I can say is I'll bring that before my council. Right. Um, the, you know, if people want accountability, the way it works in most major cities in this country is a mayor has the ability uh, to enact laws. And then, of course, I'm sorry, not enact them, rather to to uh, to be able to have an administrative uh, um, team that will implement mm-hmm. uh, direction and then obviously have the consequence if it fails. Yeah, yeah. Let's bring in Charlene from the east side of San Jose. Hello, Mayor Licardo. Um, my name is Charlene, a longtime resident of East San Jose. Um, my family lives here together in the east side. And one, the San Jose that I'd like to see in the very near future is a cleaner San Jose um, with streets and parks in the east side of San Jose in particular, where trash on the streets, um, folks who are currently unhoused um, congregate in areas near parks and near places where, you know, Eastside families frequent. So what I'd like to see is just a cleaner San Jose. And I know that you've already addressed some of the housing um, issues in the city and, you know, unhoused folks do generate quite a bit of trash in our city. And I know that that's an issue that's being worked on, but what can we do in the very short term as we're working on these bigger issues of housing to ensure that the city is a cleaner city where families, especially on the east side, want to stay in the east side to be able to frequent the park safely um, and not worry about our children um, being being unsafe or being in, you know, un, unsanitary areas that could cause fire hazards and whatnot in our neighborhood. And so I'd like to see cleaner San Jose in particular. I know there was a program that I was very excited about that started where 
there was you the city was incentivizing unhoused folks to collect trash and in exchange they'd receive a cash incentive and i thought wow that could actually really work and then i learned that there was there was some inconsistencies in keeping the program going and so i'm wondering what happened with that program and what are some other initiatives to help keep our keep our city safe once again especially here on the east side where it tends to go unnoticed great comment thanks so much charlene yeah thanks charlene uh, for that question. Uh, the, the program you're referring to is what we call Cash for Trash, um, something we launched here in partnership with MasterCard where we're providing unhoused residents with um, with cash cards they could use uh, for purchasing food and necessities uh, in exchange for their, the residents' willingness to be able to uh, collect uh, bags of trash in their area uh, when we provide them with the bags. Uh, and it became very obvious when we initially launched this program that we were not doing a very good job of uh, responding rapidly to be able to get the the bags and get new bags to the residents. We've since uh, changed it and we've implemented uh, a more rapid response. We now are building toward 500 participants uh, and uh, with some more funding that we've we've invested along with the water district and others. And so I think what we're going to see uh, as we scale this program is greater success as long as we're uh, out there responding on a weekly basis rather than letting it go for weeks or even a month. Um, there's another program I'm really proud of that is, is just getting going and we're expanding to 150 participants soon. It's called San Jose Bridge. We're actually employing unhoused residents. And as part of that employment program, we are getting them housed, most importantly. Uh, and these are folks who are you know, working uh, 30 to 40 hours a week for the city, uh, picking up trash, uh, beautifying our city, uh, cleaning graffiti. And we're also providing them with other job transition services, helping them scale up for other jobs. Several of those folks have already gotten hired. We've had a couple dozen get hired from the program. You know, employers just want to be able to see, hey, do they show up on time? Do they do what they say they're going to do? Uh, And and we're proven that we can help folks get uh, into other positions. One just got hired by Tesla, which is fantastic, a couple by Caltrans. Um, so we are, we've also invested more funding in that this year, uh, and it's going to be out on the street. You're going to start to see the impacts this summer as we get more folks hired. And then finally, you know, we've got a real problem with our freeways. And uh, I made a very strong point last week uh, at a local transit board meeting with the local transit Caltrans director that as we look at the funding allocations, Bay Area wide, Santa Clara County and San Jose are simply not getting their proportionate share, either on a per mile basis or per capita basis, uh, we're not getting the, the the resources. And so we're going to be pushing hard on Caltrans to make sure they're devoting the resources they need to devote uh, to uh, keep our freeways clean. We're working hard on an initiative called Beautify SJ that was going pretty well until the pandemic hit. And then we had to just really slow it down uh, to really try to energize neighborhoods and getting becoming part of it, getting more uh, residents participating. We had hundreds and hundreds of volunteers that were signing up every week, which was great, uh, helping us clean up. Uh, we're also giving grants to local neighborhoods and school associations uh, that want to beautify their own corner of the city, perhaps with murals, perhaps with uh, community cleanup programs. So we're going to be pushing on all cylinders this year, particularly as we're coming out of this pandemic. Uh, well, we hope we're coming out of this pandemic and we're able to get people back together. Yeah. 
Let's also talk about some of your initiatives to provide housing and support for homeless residents of, of San Jose. I mean, this has been obviously not just a San Jose problem. It's a problem in Oakland. It's a problem in San Francisco. It's a problem in a lot of the smaller cities um, of the Bay Area. And everybody's been trying to find some other solutions given the housing market and the way that it is, given how expensive rent is, um, and given how many people have, have been falling into homelessness over the last few years. So what what were you, what was your approach and what's worked for you over this last, you know, um, your, your tenure as mayor? Yeah, you know, this is overwhelmingly a big city problem. And and I don't think it's just here in the barrier. I think, you know, I talked to colleagues from Denver to Las Vegas to Seattle. It's it's awful everywhere. Um, and everyone is struggling mightily uh, to get folks housed. What we are seeing, you know, work is obviously housing. <laughs> we know that's the one solution. The challenge is we're in a Bay Area where it costs perhaps $800,000 per unit to build a typical apartment building to get anybody housed. And we know that the development cycle can be four, five, six years at a time. And that's just not a solution uh, that is scalable or or one that's going to enable us to really tackle this problem fast enough. So we certainly want to do that. We're going to keep investing in that. Uh, but we also need to do other things. What we're seeing working is cer- certainly homelessness prevention programs, investing relatively small amounts of money when a family is struggling right before they've gotten their notice of eviction. Mm-hmm. What we're seeing is that perhaps four or $5,000 uh, in the hands of a family that's struggling in that moment when they've lost their job or they've had the health setback. What we're seeing a year later is 95% of those folks are staying housed. And so that's a much more uh, cost-effective intervention. And by the way, obviously, one that results in a whole lot less human misery than trying to deal with a family once they're out on the street. Mm-hmm. So, so we think that's worth investing in. The second thing I'd say is that during this pandemic, we've discovered ways of building faster and getting red tape out of the way. And what I call quick build apartments, uh, where we're using prefabricated modular housing on often neglected parcels of public land. Sometimes it's near a freeway or no builder wants to build. And, and we're able to build it safely. We're, we're, we're you know, working with Caltrans and others. Uh, and we've seen just in the year of the pan, you know, in the first year of the pandemic, we built three of these communities. Uh, rather than building them in five or six years, we we're building them in five or six months. Uh, not at $800,000 a unit, but $100,000 a unit. And so this is a solution we really want to scale quickly. We've got two more of these sites under construction. We want to find more money to build a lot more. We think we can move a lot more people off the street. And these units are, you know, private bedrooms, private bathrooms. There are communal facilities, like, for example, for kitchens mm-hmm. uh, and so forth. But we think this is a real solution that gets more people off the street quickly. Yeah. So you are term limited out uh, after after this year. And I know you're not leaving San Jose city politics, even if you're not going to be mayor forever. I wanted to ask you about this group, Common Good Silicon Valley, which has been raising money to support local political candidates with your support. And you said about it, we're interested in supporting candidates who are independent of the larger forces in politics today, but have a fundamental belief in supporting jobs and housing in our community. I want to know what that means to you. Um, Because I was confused a little bit by what what that was supposed to indicate the kind of candidates you were looking for. Yeah, I I think, you know, we know that the the political extremes are driving uh, a disproportionate amount of dialogue uh, in this country. And I would also argue a, a disproportionate amount of activity and an awful lot of folks in the middle are being left out. 
you know, the 80% of us who are between the 10 yard lines. And uh, we are really looking for candidates who are willing to say, look, I'm not simply going to kowtow to this group or that group. Uh, I'm, first of all, we fundamentally believe that an independent approach is a relatively more moderate approach um, than some of the proposals we're seeing uh, on the extremes right now. Uh, and we also know that there are particular forces at work that can be very powerful uh, in local government in particular. Uh, we know developers can be very powerful. We know that unions can be very powerful. Uh, and the question is, uh, are there candidates who can say no to their friends? Uh, they can be progressive and still say, you know what, I'm not always going to be there uh, and do exactly what the unions want me to do. Uh, they can be uh, pro-jobs and not always do exactly what the developers want them to do. Uh, that's the independence we're looking for. I mean, so you said that are there candidates who can say no to their friends, but the political action committee is mostly taking in money from developers, right? So you're taking in money for people who are going to say no to developers or yes to developers? <laughs> oh, there's no question. There's a lot of developer uh, support. There's also support from, from other organizations and individuals as well. Uh, it's not a secret that developers provide a large source of funding for local campaigns. Mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of those developers are necessarily expecting that folks are going to be suddenly unabashedly um, uh, eliminating every potential rule and restriction for development. I think mm -hmm. what the developers that I work well with simply want is they just want a clear set of rules. They don't want the rules to change <laughs> at the last minute after they've invested uh, an enormous amount of resources and maybe two years on getting a project to the point where it's ready for council approval to find uh, the council suddenly decides they want something different than what's in their general plan. So, you know, what we're telling developers is, look, you know, we're not always going to be there for whatever you want, but we're going to be clear about what the rules are and the rules aren't going to be shifting. And I think in a lot of cities throughout this, the Bay Area, that is the number one gripe I hear from a lot of folks in the development community. And let's face it, we need developers to build housing. And when they spend two years to get a project ready to go and, and perhaps, you know, uh, six figures or seven figures to, to get it to the starting uh, point, only to be told by the council, well, that's not what we meant when we said in our general plan, we want housing here. That's that's the real problem. Let's bring in uh, one last caller, Chris from Santa Clara. Great. Hey, hey thanks for taking the call. A couple of real quick questions. Um, hey, Mayor Sam, what do you think in terms of realistically, population-wise, how many years ahead before San Jose is up to 1.5 million or 2 million? And then the kind of correlative question to it with UC Berkeley and UC Santa Cruz clearly staying, saying in their communities they are not going to expand in San Jose State close to full. How does San Jose and Santa Clara County project to meet university demand given the increase in population that we know is coming? Yeah, great questions. Um, Chris, the, the 1.52 million uh, um, number, I, I think, you know, our growth rate has slowed dramatically in the last decade. Uh, well, actually, I should say decade and a half. Um, and so, you know, our, our rate of growth during the 50s and 60s was higher than any other city in the nation. <laughs> um, and now, uh, we are almost at stasis, uh, at less than 1% over the last few years. So it's going to be a ways off uh, unless something dramatically changes around our ability to get a lot more high rises um, out of the ground here in downtown and, and, and 
you know, appropriately to be able to build the housing that we need. So I don't think it's at any time in the next decade, put it that way. Um, with regard to university capacity, you know, we've got a great university here in downtown San Jose State uh, that provides uh, more engineering talent to Silicon Valley than all the other uh, universities combined in the area, uh, including some pretty well-known ones. Uh, and they've got capacity to grow. I know they're uh, expanding their campus out into the city, which is a wonderful thing. I think we want to see more integration uh, of that university in our city, get more college students out into downtown, uh, and also get more housing here for both the students and for the, the, the staff. Uh, so I think you're going to see a lot more expansion there. We'd love to have a UC campus in, in San Jose as well or, or other campuses. We've always encouraged uh, more educational offerings, and we'll continue to do that. Yeah. You know, one last challenge for you from Mark. Sam Licardo has been associated with downtown San Francisco for the past 15 years, and that time downtown's experienced a steady decline in sharp contrast to the slow but steady rebirth seen from 1990 to 2005. Tech companies refuse to move downtown because it's considered too quote-unquote ghetto and not hip, largely due to ham-handed city hall policies that make it unlivable. With all the effort to build a new downtown, um, uh, what do you think, <laughs> Mayor Sam? Has it not worked? Do you agree with Mark? Uh, no, I don't. I think the the future's never looked brighter for our downtown. Uh, Google just committed to build a 6 million square foot campus. It's something twice the size of the Apple World headquarters in our downtown. And along with it, 4,000 units of housing, uh, a thousand of which will be rent restricted and affordable um, and, uh, you know, host of retail and other kinds of, you know, amenities that will, I think, really bring great vitality to our city. Jay Paul just finished a million square feet uh, for new tech tenant. Adobe is just doubling its world headquarters here in downtown. Um, Boston Properties is about to restart another million square feet. We've got major investments that we've never seen before. West Bank, incredible investments in housing uh, and office. Um, and all of this isn't going to be able to really come to fruition until human beings are back working in offices again. And so obviously during pandemics, downtowns don't look very good. Yeah. Uh, and, and ours is no exception. Uh, I feel very bullish about the future of this downtown. Uh, we are really taking advantage of opportunities as we never have before and really providing our residents with the urban center uh, that they have long aspired to have, a place that will be a great cultural center. Uh, Mayor Licardo, well going to have to cut you off. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.